Last week in our series in 1 Thessalonians, we looked at the end of chapter 4 and began thinking about the future. Likely, the church there in Thessalonica had written or had sent a message with Timothy to Paul asking about those who were in Christ who had passed away. And Paul sought to answer their question in a way that gave them encouragement and hope, understanding that those who Paul calls asleep, who he uses that same phrase here, are with the Lord and will one day return in the certain return with Jesus at his certain coming on the day of the Lord. It is the timing of the day of the Lord that Paul now turns to at the beginning of this chapter. When we have often in the church thought about the coming of the Lord, maybe you have thought about it, maybe you have studied it, maybe you've heard preachers preach on it. It is a very unique subject for us. It's a subject that many people approach in different ways. Some approach it with fear and trepidation. I can remember growing up in a church uh, that, that preached the Bible and taught the Bible and uh, would discuss these things. And I can remember being as a child somewhat fearful of the return of Jesus. This was in the 1980s when charts and graphs and v VHS cassettes were pretty popular concerning the return of Jesus. And there were some images in that that scared me to death as a child. Maybe that's your take on the day of the Lord, that this is kind of a fearful subject for the church to consider. Others, though, approach it kind of from a mystical and mystic perspective. They, they want to be able to investigate every word and parse every phrase and be able to, to figure out the clues and the hidden meanings and secrets in the text so that somehow they will know something that other people don't know. That if we can just be good detectives when it comes to the writing of the Old and the New Testament concerning the second coming of Christ, that somehow we have, will have an upper hand in being able to determine a day and a time. I think both of these are the wrong way to approach the text. I, and I, I'm going to make that claim from the text itself. I'm not making that claim simply as uh, a preacher. I'm uh, hopefully going to show you in the text today that the day of the Lord for the believer is not something to fear but it is also not something to try to figure out. It is something that should give us hope and it's something we should encourage one another with. Truthfully, as Paul turns his attention to the day of the Lord, he does so in a way that tells this fledgling church to be motivated, to be motivated in their personal and corporate disciple-making, in the mission because one day Jesus will return. This text begins with the unpredictable timing surrounding the coming of the Lord. Look with me in the first three verses. Paul says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Just stop for a moment. This is likely another question. This is this section of 1 Thessalonians. Paul, it seems to be addressing questions that this church had sent most likely with Timothy as he rejoins Paul in Corinth. But one of the questions Paul really doesn't intend to give much more detail. 
It seems as if they have asked about when will Jesus return. They asked previously about what does it mean for those who are already dead in Christ for Jesus to return. Now they're asking about the timing of it. And and Paul says, I have nothing further I need to write to you concerning this. Why? Why is there nothing more that he needs to write? Well, apparently when he was there, he had already given them some instructions, instructions that clearly mirror the teachings of Jesus himself. Verses two and three. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So Paul says, I have no need to write to you any further. I have no no explanation to give you further about the times and the seasons, meaning when is Jesus going to come back? Because you already know everything there is to know. Now, this speaks, I think, to those who want to treat the coming of the day of the Lord as some type of uh, mystery that we can investigate and be able to figure out if we'll just do the hard work of, of piecing all of these pieces of the puzzle together, we'll end, up, we'll end up somehow figuring it out. Because if there is anyone who could have figured it out, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? This is a guy who, who would have known the Old Testament better than anyone in this room. And much of the Old Testament writings about the coming of the Messiah wasn't only about the first coming, but about his second. It's a guy who wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. There is anyone who could have possibly explained things about the times and the seasons outside of Christ himself, it would have been Paul. But Paul says, I have nothing on this subject to write to you about because you already know everything you need to know. And that is the timing of the coming of the Lord is completely unpredictable. Any attempt to predict it is going directly against what scripture says about it. And he uses two metaphors. The first is a metaphor that he borrows from the Lord himself. He says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A thief in the night is the most common metaphor for the second coming of Jesus. It's recorded in multiple places in the scripture, including the teachings of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 24, we read, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house and not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Why people are driven to try to solve a mystery that the Bible tells us specifically don't try to solve is absolutely beyond me. Jesus says, you're not going to solve it. That, that, that's not the point of prophetic literature in scripture. The point is not to try to figure out when this is happening, but to live with the confidence that it will happen. And so they use the metaphor, both Paul borrowing it from Jesus of a thief in the night. You don't know when a thief is going to break into your house. That's the whole point of the metaphor. You don't know 
when the thief is going to come. And Jesus says, if you did know when the thief was going to come, you would stay awake. If I came to you today and said, I heard that somebody's gonna break into your house in the next 48 hours, I promise you, you would not sleep for the next 48 hours, would you? No, you wouldn't. You'd be waiting, you'd be ready. Some of you would be really ready. <laughs> but you'd, you'd be up and ready to go, why? Because you can expect it. It's, it. it's information that you, you know, like this is actionable information, intelligence. You're ready to go. Jesus says, we don't have that about the second coming. Paul agrees with him. We don't have that information about the second coming. So what do we have to do? We have to live as if the, the thief could come into the house at any time. The second metaphor that Paul uses in verse three, he says that it will be like, it will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now, there are pregnant women in this room today, as there are always pregnant women in this room. And they have no idea when that baby's going to come. They, they may be able to guess, and we've gotten a lot better at guessing. We've gotten, a, you know, medical technology and all of this. We've gotten a whole lot better at kind of figuring out when that's going to happen than they did in the first century when Paul's writing this. But ultimately... You just don't know. Whether it's a thief in the night or the coming of a child in labor, you just don't know. It is unpredictable. And to try to predict it is to do something opposite of what the text is intended for. So let's not parse all of these words and try to put together a puzzle that we're not intended to put together. Jesus uses two other examples that I think are helpful for us in Luke chapter 17, talking about the same subject, talking about the day of the Lord. Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So the first comparison Jesus makes is to Noah. Then he says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heavens and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Just a, a quick little side note. You should you, go home tonight. Don't do it during the sermon. Go, go home tonight and, and Google um, Sodom archaeology. There's some really exciting news came out of Israel just this week. Like they have found a city that was completely destroyed by what the Bible would have described as fire and brimstone. Really interesting stuff. And this is not like pseudoscience, real archeology span finding from this very time period. So here's what you have from Jesus. That's just an aside. Here's what you have from Jesus. Two examples, Noah and Lot. And what's happening in both of these examples? People are doing exactly what Paul says people are going to be doing at the second coming of the Lord. In verse three, he says that people will be saying there is peace and security. Paul's saying the same thing Jesus is saying, he's just saying it different. What Jesus was saying is people are gonna be going about their lives. People are gonna be marrying and giving in marriage. They're gonna be eating and drinking. They're gonna be thinking everything is fine. And that's what he means, that's what Paul means when he says people will be saying there's peace and security. That phrase, there's peace and security, was a common first century Roman phrase attributing the peace that people experienced in Roman cities to Roman rule. And so he's just borrowing this phrase and he's like, things are gonna be fine. 
And it doesn't matter that Rome has passed away. It doesn't matter that Noah and Lot were ages and ages ago. We don't need to take from this and try to make it into something other than the world is going to keep going on about its business. And suddenly, like a thief in the night, like a woman with her labor pains, Jesus will come. You're not going to be able to predict it, but it's going to come. And it's going to come like a thief in the night upon who? And I think this is why this passage in Luke 17 helps us here. Who's it going to be a thief in the night too? Now, it's going to come like a thief in the night in that it is unpredictable. But when Jesus comes, those who experience him as, as if they are a homeowner experiencing the ravagings of a thief are the lost. See, Noah and Lot were saved out of the coming destruction, right? So who is it that the thief in the night is going to come upon? He's going to come upon the lost. And so again, this is not intended for us to to create fear and trepidation in our hearts if we are in Christ. There is no reason to fear the coming day of the Lord because we are, as we're going to see, be ready for it. Even if we don't know when it's going to be, we're going to live as if we're ready for it, which leads us to the Second part here, motivations concerning the coming of the Lord. So likely the church at Thessalonica reads these first couple of verses from Paul and maybe are a little disappointed. Let's just be honest for a second. Some of you knew I was going to be preaching on the day of the Lord today and I preached on the future last week and maybe you came today and you hear me say that we're not gonna have big charts and graphs behind me and I'm not gonna tell you, you know, 88 reasons that Jesus is coming back in 1988 or whatever it was, right? But, and maybe you're, maybe you're a little disappointed. Well, that may be the response that, that this church had. They're like, wait, Paul, we wanted some more details. We asked for more details. And all you told us was the same thing that you had told us before. Well, don't be disappointed, church. There's still a sermon here. And I think there's still an intention of the apostle here instructing the church. And here's what the intention is. We don't need to be trying to place the pieces of the puzzle of the coming of the day of the Lord together. We just need to live in the confidence that it's going to happen and allow that confidence to motivate us towards Christian living. So we're going to see numerous motivations. There are four motivations that we're going to see in this text. The first one is in verses four and five, where Paul is going to encourage them to live in the light. Look at these verses together. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. What Paul tells them now transitioning towards these motivations of how they are supposed to live is that they are to live in the light. They must recognize who they are. And we as the readers of the text must recognize who we are in light of what Christ has done for us. Because we have been made something new, something different. We are now in the light. We've been told in first, uh, in first Peter chapter two, that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That at the moment of our salvation, something incredible happens that we go from being someone who would be taken by surprise at the day of the Lord to someone who is living as if they are expecting the day of the Lord because we are now in the light. 
Now, let me make this abundantly clear. Living in the light doesn't mean you're going to know when Jesus will return. It just means you won't be caught off guard by the return of Jesus. Those in Christ who are living in the life and living in the light will be prepared for the coming of the Lord. This is why I believe, I, I truly do, a right understanding of what's known as eschatology, end times doctrine, right? A right understanding of that means we could preach the same exact sermons from every text of scripture to every generation that has lived from the early church in the first century to now and could continue to preach those same sermons based on those same texts and the same truths for however much longer we have until Jesus comes back. Because every generation has been called to this same end, live in the light because Jesus may return in this generation. He didn't return in the previous one. He didn't return in the dozens of generations previous to that. He could return in this one. I have no evidence at all to say he's going to return in this one. And I don't believe we should look for evidence that says he's going to return in this one. Outside of this, live in the light. Because we are not in the darkness anymore because we have been called into the marvelous light of God. So we will not be caught off guard because we're going to live our lives as if Jesus could return at any moment. Motivation number two, Paul says, stay awake. Look at verses six and seven. So then, because we're in the light, right? This is the response to being in the light, the response to the change Jesus has made in our lives. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, again, these are metaphors sleeping. It's not the same metaphor as those who are asleep as if they are dead in Christ and so are asleep. He's using, this is an actual metaphor of those who are sleeping at night or those who are drunk at night. And Paul says, because you have been called out of darkness into the light, because you're now a child of the light, you are a person of the light, you should now stay awake, recognize that who you are, a child of the light, affects what you do. One commentator wrote it like this. He says, this intimate relationship between their new existence and their new moral life touches a fundamental aspect of Christian ethics. What they are is what they should do. So here, hear the instruction, church. Because God has made you something new, because you now are in the light, you should actually live in the light. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus addressing this same subject concerning the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord writes this. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So this brief little parable that Jesus tells, it's kind of, story that helps us put, our play, put ourselves in the place of 
the servant here, the master is gone. Who's the master in this story? The master is certainly Jesus in this story. And who has he left behind to accomplish his, his, his mission on earth? He's left behind his church. So we are the servants in this story. And what does he say? He says, you don't know. Is it going to be in the evening or at midnight or in the rooster crows, which means like right at dawn or in the morning, sometime in the morning hours? We just don't know. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when the master is going to come back. So what do we do? We stay awake. So our new position as those who are awake, as those who are in the light, it doesn't matter which metaphor you want to use. We're in the light, we're awake. And so what do we do? We live in the light. We live as if we are awake, not asleep, not where we would be taken by surprise by what the Lord is doing. Because while his coming will be like a thief in the night and his coming will bring, as we will see in a moment, destruction upon those who are not in Christ, we are awake. We are expecting it. And if it doesn't come tomorrow, it doesn't change my expectation of it. I imagine if you'd have gone, maybe even to the apostle Paul, but certainly to these Christians that he's writing to and said that for 2000 years, we would still be waiting on the return of Christ. There may be those that would think, wow, 2000 years, does that mean that he's not going to return? No, which is why I think we, we've had this keen interest in this. And I think lots of generations and you know, ages within the church have, have had this, this interest thinking it's going to be now, th- looking for signs to confirm that, that Jesus is going to return in, in my lifetime. I don't know if Jesus is going to return in my lifetime. What's my responsibility though? To live awake. What's your responsibility? To live in the light. This is what we do. We're motivated by the promised return of the Messiah. That we live. We, we allow who we are to change what we do. Then that's really going to kind of be defined for us here in this third motivation. To live a self-controlled life. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul says, but since we belong to the day, so appealing again to who we are, new creations in Christ that have been called out of darkness and into light. And he says, he has just used this metaphor, right? Those who get drunk, get drunk at night, but we need to be sober. So he says, let us be sober. Now this isn't a passage talking about whether or not one should consume alcohol. This is talking about the self-controlled nature of the Christian life. Because a drunk person is certainly not self-controlled. That's what makes them, that's what kind of defines what a drunk person is. They're unable to control their words. They're unable to control their actions. They're not sober. They're not self-controlled. And Paul contrasts that with those who are in the light and says, be sober. Be sober-minded, be self-controlled, recognize, recognize that the master has left you, the servant here with something to do. And he may return soon. He may return in the middle of the night. He may return years and years from now. And it doesn't matter. Our instruction is to live self-controlled lives. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this is a, a, some similar language to what Paul does at the end of, of Ephesians, 
right? When, when, when he talks about the armor of God, this was written before Ephesians. So maybe Paul's starting to work out this metaphor in his mind, but this, the vision, this image of a, the image of a Roman soldier would have been very common for everyone that Paul is writing to. It was, it was a common image of the day. And Paul's recognizing that there are certain things that we are going to need to be able to remain awake, to remain in the light, to remain sober and self-controlled. These really are what he lists here, faith, love, and hope are fundamental Christian virtues. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's ultimately going to say that these, when everything else passes away, these are the three things that are going to remain, faith, hope, and love. And he, he says, we're gonna have faith and love as our breastplate. We're going to have salvation as our helmet because it is these virtues, this, what is it, th these things that define what it means to be in Christ, faith, hope, and love that are going to help us endure to the end. Let's just be honest for a moment. The mission can get tiring. Could you imagine, let's just go back to Jesus' metaphor for a moment. This is a short little parable in Mark. The master goes on a journey, doesn't tell his servants when he's going to come back, commands them to stay awake. Hour after hour, day after day, these servants stay awake doing the command of the master, fulfilling their duties as a servant of the master. Weak? after week, month, after month, year after year? Can you imagine in that story, the servants getting tired? Sure they can. And so there, there's encouragement for us here that God is equipping us for the work that he's calling us to. I think that's what faith, love, and hope represent here, these Christian virtues. And, and, and in, in light of Paul saying they're, they're kind of like this Roman soldier's outfit. It's meaning God's given you the things that you need to continue day after day to stay awake, to live in the light, to be self-controlled. The final motivation, it's at the end of the passage, to trust in the redemptive work of Christ. Paul writes, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So what's the promise here? This final motivation is a reminder. Remember where your salvation comes from and remember what you have been saved from. Our salvation comes from the Lord alone who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep. So here he's going back to that previous metaphor of 1 Thessalonians chapter four, those who are asleep in Christ. So whether we've gone on to be with the Lord or are still awake and alive in this world, seeking to accomplish the mission of our master who has left us here, we have hope and assurance that Jesus' death secured for us salvation from our sins, meaning no longer are we under the wrath of God that we are not destined for wrath. We, we are not destined, meaning in the future, we are not destined for that, that those who are still asleep, those who are still dead in their trespasses and sin are destined for. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul gives a little more of a, a little better of a picture of what this destiny of wrath looks like. He writes there, starting in verse six of the first chapter, since indeed God considers it 
just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant, and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So Paul here in 2 Thessalonians ties this coming judgment, this wrath of God that will be poured out on unbelievers specifically to those who are afflicting the church there in Thessalonica. And this is the contrast he paints. Those who are afflicting you are still dead. Those who are afflicting you are still in darkness. They're still going about life saying everything is fine. And one day, like a thief in the night, Jesus will return and with him will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know him. So wait a second, I thought you said this wasn't a message about fear. It's not for those who are in Christ. Because what is the motivation? What is the promise? We are not destined for this wrath for we have attained the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 11, which is the same thing he says with just a little bit of different twist at the end of chapter four. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Paul echoes what he said in the previous passage to use this for encouragement, not for fear, for encouragement, that this is an encouragement to the church that we live expectant for the day of the Lord, but to also build one another up. Why include build one another up here when he didn't include that in the previous passage? Why here? Because together we are these servants that are waiting. Together we are these servants that have a mission from our master. Together we are building one another up. Read, making disciples. This is what we're doing together. And this is what we will continue to do together until the master comes and says our mission is done. So what? We must live with missional urgency driven by the imminent return of Christ. I recognize, and I, I did last week, and I did back in the spring when I taught about um, the historic um, end time doctrines, that there are different takes on the timing and return of Jesus. We recognize that. But here's what, I, here's what I think is an important distinction. If you have a end time doctrine, if you, you're thinking about the end times, and there are things that have to happen between now and Jesus returning, I would, I would say maybe you want to go back and reconsider. Because it seems as if clearly in the scripture what we are called to time and again by Christ himself and by his apostles is to live a life as if Jesus could return tomorrow. And if we're able to bank on some things, for instance, just go back to his servant metaphor. If, if we know that he's gonna get close when he gets to this other city that's outside of town and somebody's gonna come warn us, then we can get the house all straight and make it look like we were on mission the whole time. But that's not the picture, is it? The master could return at any moment. And that's what we need to be prepared for. And how, are we, how do we live prepared for it? We live with missional urgency 
because the return of the master is imminent. In his second letter to his disciple Timothy, Paul connects these two ideas for us in, in a fairly familiar passage for some of you. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Right? So uh, his appearing in his kingdom, judging the living and the dead. This is looking forward to the imminent return of Jesus. And these are the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy just before his death. He's like, Jesus is coming back, but here's what you got to do in the meantime. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, self-controlled, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know what you should have heard there, church? Be on mission. Make disciples. And how does these final instructions to Timothy, what, what, is, what does Paul say to his, his protege? Jesus is going to come back. Until that happens, you do what God has instructed you to do. So Nansman River, hear me clearly. Jesus could come back later today tomorrow, next year, or long after all of us are buried and gone. And it doesn't change things one bit. For we have confidence that he will return. And until that day, we live with urgent mission, recognizing that God has called us out of darkness and into light. And because of that, we fulfill the commands of our master to accomplish his mission. And we live in the light, expecting him to come at any moment. These are the motivations of the days of the Lord. Now quickly, I'm out of time. There may be someone in here, someone watching with us online, that this is truly a fearful sermon for you because you're not in Christ. You have not been brought out of darkness and into light. And you say, wait, if Jesus returns and I have not believed in him, what happens to me? Hear me, you will experience the full wrath of God. You will know utter destruction for all eternity in a real place called hell. This is what the Bible says. This is the destiny of those who are still children of wrath. But there is great news for you today, my friend. Believe in Jesus Christ alone for the remission of your sin. Follow in the testimonies of the four that we watched baptized today and come to saving faith in Jesus and be in the light. There's nothing that you've done in this life that can prevent you from being in the light because the love of Jesus and his offer of salvation to you can cover a multitude of sin. If you will but believe Turn from your sin and self and turn towards Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus will come again. And we recognize the weight of the mission that you have left for your church in the meantime. For however long he tarries, we live in light. And we seek to make disciples so that others may also be in the light. Help us to do that, God. Remove distraction from our path. Remove complacency from our path. Remove laziness from our path. I pray that this church will be a church on mission.
motivated by the coming day of the Lord. And I pray for the one who hears this today and at first hears it with fear, but now hears it with hope. Hope in the gospel of Jesus that can radically save and change their lives. Would you do that now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.